The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. In this episode of our History of Gear series, we talk with former president of the North Face, Bruce Hamilton. We talk about the origins of the Oval Intention tent and the evolution of the North Face under his leadership. I showed up in Berkeley as a Vietnam War kind of runaway guy. I had a degree from Vanderbilt in biology and chemistry in my pocket, and I was looking for what I was going to do. and. Uh, I was very lucky in running into Mark Erickson. We shared a room in this kind of big house that had eight bedrooms or something. Anyway, and Mark was working at the North Face. And so, you know, he, he gave me his secret. You go at 7 a.m. And on Monday morning and ask him if they need anybody. And it took three Mondays. And on the third Monday, they said, yeah, you can come in. So I started uh, minimum wage setting grommets in the webbing on the backpacks. And Eustace Boschinger was then still the designer. Mark wasn't the designer yet. App was there. Jack was there, of course. Uh, but they didn't hire me. I was hired in the, man, in the manufacturing, which is a different building, by a guy named Tony. So I did that for a while. And then I got into, um, I got the break of becoming a, a downer. I got to put the goose down into the sleeping bags and the, and the garments. And the break was you went from minimum wage to piece rate. And yeah, I learned the real beautiful value of piece rate because you, you do it right, but then you learn to do it faster. You do you get more money. It's a good thing. So I did that for a while. And then, um, oh, I started studying Fuller and I was really getting into Fuller. And I, I left in the summer of, I think, 72 to go to Carbondale and um, University of Southern Illinois, that's where he was. And I attended a World Game workshop anyway and got really into his geometry. Came back to Berkeley, came back, and this time I talked to Hap personally, and he, he gave me a job. You know, come on, let's see what we can do here. And not, not with tents yet. You know, this is just peripheral at that time. And I'm not, uh, at this time, I'm not a mountain climber. I'm not the active outdoor guy. I was always a runner. I ran, ran quite a bit and was always an athlete, but not necessarily a mountaineer. And um, it was just uh, production manufacturing. But I brought him a model of the geodesic dome, dome book one, I'm sure. And uh, Bucky had, uh, I mean, Hap had the background. He knew his Don Butts, a friend of his father, said, in 1970, wrote a letter to, to Fuller about the possibility of incorporating his geometry, his buggies, into the backpacking industry tents. So that already existed. And, and Hap could see that I was into the 
possibility of making, I wanted to make a 10 at that point. So I was variously QA manager. I was ombudsman at one point. I was director of engineering at one point. Well, engineering manager, whatever you want to call it. And eventually I became production manager, VP manufacturing, and all, you know, all that managerial stuff I was pretty good at. So every time, you know, there'd be a job I would take. Now, however, when Bob Gillis showed up in 74 and he had his structure with him, and I, I did send you that little narrative, which I must have written around 77. I don't have a date on that. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, they called me in, of course. So it's Hap, Jack, Mark, and me, and Bob Gillis. And he's got this bigger structure, and, and he was a minimalist. So he, he didn't want to cut the fabric. He wanted to just pull the fabric up. And he didn't want us to have money and all that. In fact, he didn't want to wear shoes. He, he squatted in San Jose in the, in the public forest, and, and he was barefoot. I visited him several times down there. Anyway, so um, the first one just wasn't right. We did work, to, we collaborated. We were kindred souls in a way about, about tension and structure. Uh, all this time I'm still, I'm working though in, in other roles. I'm not in the design. They're not saying, oh, you're, you're a tent designer. But, um, with that idea and with Mark's design experience at that point, we turned it into what became the Oval Intention. And that first one was a summer of 76, I think pretty sure June of 76. And um, put it in the catalog and use a quote from Synergetics. And uh, that's how we got to write a letter to Bucky and say, hey, we used your quote without permission. <laughs> I hope it's okay. And of course he comes back and says, oh, it's okay. And at the, in that letter, that's where we offered to show it to him at uh, anywhere in the West Coast. And he said, okay, let's go and come down to Santa Monica. And that's where Mark and I and Bob Gillis and Jim Shirley, who was also quite a player in the early North Face, wrote copy for the catalog ran the catalog division for a while, a good photographer uh, all around, a really solid person. Anyway, we uh, showed up there, and, and as the story is, is true, but we knocked on the door of a motel room on the second floor, midway down the hall, and Bucky opens the door, you know, and, and we were just stunned. There was nobody there, you know, secretary, he didn't have an assistant. Just, oh, hi, guys. You're here. <laughs> so, you know, we pitched the tent on the balcony for him out there. He loved it. He's, everybody's seen the pictures. That led to the um, invitation a few months later in March, I think, to have the Oval show up at the... Um, now house exhibit in vancouver that's how that connection happened so bucky then wrote and, and Hap got all over it said this is great we'll do it and we put sleeping bags in there we put our our um, roof sacks in there i think at that time um and a couple jackets even vests and then the two old attention tents were all in there 
So at this point, the North Face and, and uh, geodesics and in, innovation really started getting tied together. It wasn't just sleeping bags and, you know, what was the Michelin man coat, you know, the, all the down jacket, which is kind of like a short sleeping bag with sleeves. That's where the clothing was at that time. Um, the clothing evolved into the mountain jacket, the cagoule, those types of very functional clothing. And in running the, as I was running the factory, we had complete USA production. And we made all of that under one roof, tents, sleeping bags, backpacks, um, down clothing, Gore-Tex, then soon to come Gore-Tex clothing. And it was quite a um, big operation. We had um, 300 people probably working there in Berkeley. Um, in, in, uh, in that period then, trying to remember, um, oh yeah, Bucky made the first visit, because now we've had this con contact back and forth, so now we've been to the Now House, and we invite him to come and visit the North Face. Um, actually, there's one thing in between. There was Pajaro Dunes, which is a resort on the coast of California, and they had a come and be with a Bucky Fuller event, which I attend. And I'm talking. I made. I had a one. I, I had already made up at that point a five eighths four frequency. 1.8 meter stand up, walk around room size geodesic tent, which we pitched a pitch for him there. And he was just as enthused as he could be. And he said, by the way, I'm going to Singapore to do a housing event and I would love to have a model and I'll buy this one from him. I said, I can't sell you this one. This is just, you know, okay then, will you make me one? I said, sure. <laughs> of course. That's how we got the invite for him to come to Berkeley, to the factory headquarters. And he did, and he was so gracious, and he spent lots of time there, uh, met lots of people. And uh, that was uh, October 77. And, and the North Face is really starting to, to get a run. You know, we've got a brand, big brand going. Happens the marketing guy. He was, he was very, very strong from day one and we're going to make a million dollar brand out of this there's no question so and he was doing it and jack of course was the great salesman of all time mark was a very good designer I mean, we had a good team let's just say that we had a pretty good team going there and uh, so bucky comes then and everybody is really enthused and we have uh he talks for an hour and a half you know the way he does maybe you don't but he, he can just talk for an hour um then, then, it, it, we did, then there was the Jack, I talked to Jack and Jack was all for this. We let's dedicate the catalog, the next catalog, which was the winter, I think, spring, winter, 78. And uh, that's you did ask me something I'm proud of. I wrote the copy for that. I composed it, picked the pictures and so that then again became very, very linked with North Face. The, you know, we had a poem in there. You know, we had just all that stuff of 
we can change the world. You know, it was kind of like the Beatles, all I can eat is love. I mean, we were still there in 78, I was. <laughs> and most of my colleagues were, you know, we really, really thought get people outdoors, get them camping. They, and, and part of my, um, my initiative and my passion was to take that geometry just, just, just due to, to where I was, serendipity, who I am, whatever. But I grasped the geometry, the, the difference between um, right angles and 60 degree angles and looking at a structure from the outside versus looking at it from the inside and how you grow and all that. And anyway, I wanted to get it out of the textbook because it's not easy to read synergetics. And that was what I thought. He said, okay, we'll just put it on the street. You know, we'll get, we'll get. and we were able to do that. Um, so that was then we're up to 78 or 80. And in 82, I sent you that also, I think. Mark and I flew down. We were corresponding with Bucky all this time. And um, the North Face is just growing. We're, and changing, starting to really change too, because we're, we're doing uh, Gore-Tex, of course, the clothing became huge, and just more streetwear, not strictly climbing a rock, climbing a mountain, and then ski wear, of course, came in. So when you do ski wear, by definition, it's functional, you know, and so you have to get into fashion. So the fashion element started coming in. Um, by 82, Mark and I flew down to Pacific Palisades to meet with Buggy and discuss uh, a collaboration on a design, of a, a real Bucky Fuller design for the North Face specifically. And of course, Hap's supporting all this, and Jack. I mean, I'm, I'm never on my own doing these things, and neither is Mark. But it was similar to the uh, first meeting. We walked, we, we drove up in front of a suburban house, knocked on the door, Bucky opened the door. And no Anne, no, that's his wife, Anne, no other human there. And it's just he and me and Mark. And we start talking and he's got models and we're looking at the models. He's saying, I think you need to have an articulating uh, strut that has an elbow. And he kept talking about that. Oh, we got off into housing and he went off into talking about Russia and arms buildup and money and economics and all that. It was really interesting. Uh, and then Mark being Mark said, hey, let's get this back to the, talking about the uh, design we're gonna make, what are we gonna do here? And, and, and we really did come to an agreement, um, a little letter, another letter or two back and forth. And, and we, we had an absolute deal. We're gonna pay you this much. And then, unfortunately, that was too close to the end. He died not too long after that. But the second visit to North Face then is what I'm trying to get to. That came out of that. And that was in 83. That was June of 83 because he died in July, two weeks before he came and visited the North Face. And that was the dedication of the new office building. So North Face had gotten so big and everything that we had went to another piece of property about oh, you know, a block from the factory, not very far away at all, still in that industrial zone of Berkeley. But he built a very modern, very, very nice 
building, very expensive building. And Bucky was invited to be the speaker for the dedication. And it was a pretty big deal. You know, the mayor's there and everything. We're creating all these jobs. And here comes Buckminster Fuller to town, which in, in that San Francisco Bay Area, he, he, he was quite well known. And it was like at the height of his popularity, too. You know, he, he, he was obscure for a long, long time. But then, anyway, uh, that's when you see Hap uh, and, and me in, in the office and Bucky sitting there and he's signing books and doing all that kind of stuff. Then he addresses the whole gathered company in the building. So that was really um, uh, a good personal event for me. I got to introduce him. So was there, it sounds like you were working on a plan to create a new version of the tent with Bucky. Is that right? But his, his, his passing, what what happened with that? Was there was there a new tent that was was going to be designed with, right. with okay. him? What was, we, we what was had, the story there? The, the question was: Were we ever going to get out of the backpackable mountain climbing, you know, hurricane proof, snow proof thing, and make a, a more 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 general and bigger? And housing was always in the background. I mean, the now house event that that we were all behind was was about. Is there any way to break this hot housing issue, which is still with us, uh, and it seems in perpetuity that it's going to be with us. So we wanted to make bigger ones, and we had marketed the two-meter dome. There, there, were, there were some narrow uses like for that. Uh, the starter's hut at the top of the ski race, things like that, you know. And, and, uh, but hard to find a market, and, and completely outside of of, of the, the market uh, venues, the retail stores, where do you go get a North Face? I mean, you, you, no retail store is going to pitch a two-meter tent. So. But that was the idea. But it was the same technology as the oval. I mean, it's arched poles with sleeves, just in beautiful patterns and strong. The pole. There's a couple pole stories about Eastern Aluminum that are might be worth mm-hmm. talking about a little bit. But... Uh, the poles were quite a bit bigger than in, in diameter, and stiffer, but still flexible. Anyway, but the idea was to make a true tent segregate tent. I'm not sure if you're. Uh, uh, I made I made a note to to have you explain tent segregate. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, the fuller would um, talk about the arch. Or start with. You, you build things by stacking up blocks and then you put a lintel, post a lintel, that's Roman. Then you get an arch and you can, you can have the viaducts and then you spin the arch, you can have the cathedral, but you've got all this massive weight and eventually you have to have things outside to keep the weight in and that's Notre Dame and all that. But you want to build structure by pulling in, not by stacking. And all the stacking needs the Earth's gravity to keep the stones there, or a little mortar, something like that. He wants to build by using tension elements. And he would say, there's nothing between us and the moon. It just stays there. We are in gravitational tension. The universe, the atoms, everything. There are no things. There's just energy in motion. So he invents the word. He was a wordsmith for sure. And he gets from tension 
to tensegrity. The in integrity of the structure is up to the tension element, not the compression element. The compression element got a slenderness ratio and they want to bend like straw. Tension though, doesn't matter how long you get that 100 pound tension of fishing line, you still got 100 pound strength. So that's what tensegrity means. And, and the skin then would not be part of the structure at all. You have the structure. And that's where I was before Bob showed up. And, and, the, and the great breakthrough was that the skin and the pole can just be take care of it. It's just like blowing a balloon. They take care of each other. But we still, I always, and so it happened, so did North, Jack, everybody. We wanted to do a, a real tensegrity tent, and so did Bucky. That sketch he made for me when we showed him the oval in, in uh, January of 97, it was of a tensegrity tent. He wanted a tensegrity tent. Meaning that, okay, you could take the skin off and, and, and the, the structure would be there and it would be strong and you could, you know, beat on it. And the stuff. fabric isn't what's holding it together. It's right. the tension of the, of the poles. Go back to my role a little bit in the evolution of the company, because I know this is about the outdoor industry and not about tents necessarily or Bucky Fuller necessarily or anything like that. But at that time, when I uh, when we worked on it, uh, Oval, I was probably engineering manager, I think, and and I I did all of that in overtime or whatever. You know, we didn't. We got paid salaries back then, and we usually had a salary. It just didn't matter. You worked. And then at the end of that time, I wanted to be the designer. Can't you just let me be the designer? <laughs> and and Jack said we just can't afford it. We can't have another salary in there. So they wouldn't. They didn't want me to do that. So I actually resigned in uh, December of '76. Took a year off. And um, came back again. Um, and as, when I came back that next time, that's when I was on Budsman because there was a little unrest in the factory. So many people um, and so many diversity of people, Filipinos, Blacks, Spanish, Chinese from Taiwan, Chinese from mainland, Japanese. We had such a mix of people. And so I tried to um, to do that. We had meetings. And it was a very forward-looking company. We had uh, that anyway. So by that time, um, oh, let's see, 82, 83, 84. Yeah, okay. Um, at that time, Sportswear comes in. So it's not just outerwear anymore. We get this idea of we have to grow. We have to have more for the retailer. We have the distribution channels, Japan, Europe, everything. But we need active outdoor sportswear. That... It, uh, I was a VP of manufacturing and sourcing. We had sourcing going on. We had people going to Hong Kong all the time. Uh, but a tough game to break into. Um, 
you, you don't know clothing. Clothing is not <laughs> equipment. <laughs> and, and there are people who've been there, been doing it for so long that are, are so we, we would try to get beautiful fabrics and all that, and we couldn't get to the minimum buy. And I said, well, you need, you need to buy 8,000 yards of that or something. So how about 300 yards? Oh. Things like that would be going on. And, and we had the, um, the problem of um, inventory build that you can't get rid of because in the equipment business, you have to innovate and you have to keep changing. And your, your product could get stale and you could get old. Other guys can run past you, but you have a new cycle. You can catch up. You can do that. In the clothing business, if you miss the color, if you miss the spring, and you, 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 so you, you, we would have our 12 sales reps in the meeting, one from each area of the country, and you'd show them a garment, and you'd say, well, what's the number one color? You'd be lucky if you could get number one color. You'd say, what's the number two color? It's absolutely not going to get there. What's, what's number three? What's number four? I mean, what works in LA just doesn't work in Maine necessarily. Um, so we would have these problems where you have to go to Hong Kong and make a buy and you buy a thousand of this particular style and you'd sell 400 of them and you had 600 of them <laughs> and now it's getting to be winter. So that's when the invention of the factory outlet really came through. The factory outlets, uh, they used to have bargain basements and department stores, similar idea. But they were very, very um, helpful. The whole retail problem of North Face and being a wholesaler and trying to be a retailer became a little bit of, a, of an issue. For example, if you have a beautiful store in, in a perfect location in a good middle-sized town and the North Face is brand is predominant in this guy's store. And then he gets a call one day and he says, by the way, we're going to um, build our own store two blocks down the street from it. It makes it a little hard for the wholesale division. So there would be conflicts between the guy who's responsible for wholesale sales and the guy responsible for retail sales. So eventually we've got about 13 or so first line retail and we've got about six or so outlets and the factory outlets uh, were profitable and several to a few of the retail stores were really struggling. It, it was very competitive by that point. That's when there were some real conflicts starting to happen. Um, it within the, within the management uh, happened, Jack actually had some disagreements. Uh, uh, then there was a, an incident with the board where uh, uh, one of Hap's father's uh, friends had helped him from the beginning, been on the board, had investment, and he died. So at the next board meeting, his son inherited the seat and the stock showed up and he was not too happy about, you know, you have all this in play, you've got this beautiful brand, you've got all this, but you're not making much return on the investment. So that kind of hard business stuff started coming in. 
and um, Jack um, realized, well, Sierra Designs also, now Sierra Designs is in Berkeley too. We were head-to-head rivals for years. Um, they had problems. They were bought and sold. North Face bought Sierra Designs. I think you probably are well aware of this history. At that time, we didn't have an executive to go take over, so I got that role. So, okay, you are now going to try to run Sierra Designs. Um, and I didn't know much at all about, well, I knew almost nothing about sales and marketing, let's say that. And, but I started going to the sales meetings and just getting involved. But Jack, but through that, uh, they were almost completely sourced. They, they had to manufacture, but they learned about sourcing much faster than we do, and probably on my shoulders that we didn't learn fast enough and get the, the real notion of, hey, it's going offshore. I don't care how good your factory is. I don't care how good your fa- you're doing. The, the uh, epiphany for me, Shanghai, seventh floor of a building in downtown Shanghai, and they have uh, a cutting floor. Now we had we had cutting tables. We had seventeen of them. We had the best equipment. People could ride on them back and forth. They'd see a flaw, stop, back up, lay fabric over. Unbelievable. But I, I go into this this room. It's a hundred foot long table at least, and they're like eight dudes on each side of the table. And the first two take the fabric and walk about three yards and the second two, they walk about three yards and and you're just going, that's it. I mean, uh, well, and Jack, to go back to that, he picked that up from Paul uh, from Sierra Designs about this is it. And so he started a new division called Wendy Pass. So now not only do we have the two brands, North Face here designs, now we have Wendy Bess. Now there's all kinds of other resource conflicts and all that. And uh, that's why I sent you that one picture about the opening of the South Coast Plaza retail. Now this is not the North Face that I walked into. This was not the little store on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley that had a little bit of a Chenard uh, pitons and Caribbean mountain pack. And, uh, this was a uh, big time theater, almost retailist theater. It's my version, my view. And, um, I did, I did build a structure just for that store, uh, quarter sphere on each side of the glass entry above the doorway, big entry. And when you walked under, you got that whole geodesic pattern feeling and two were uh, sandwiching the door, the area above the door. But you see that picture, and, um, and I look at it, and I go, I bet you there's $500 worth of ties on that group of people. You know, look at me and Hap and Jack and Mark. And, uh, we were a little bit different from the Ragley uh, camper out there. And 
and the business was changing so fast. And um, during, go back to the board meeting with the new board member and this conflict that was developing. And that store cost a lot of money. And uh, there was a challenge in the board meeting where, geez, half that court, that, that store cost you $700,000, something, whatever. No, half says no. Half a million max. It never ever have money. Well, Jack, um, I mean, um, um, the, uh, I just looked at his name, slipped my mind for a minute here, but um, the CEO of finance, the financial guy, Jeff, Jeff Corner. Jeff is sitting there and then he goes, uh, half 750000 like, I, you want me to put it on the table here? I will, but it, it costs $750,000 to open this. Similar thing had happened when we built a new um, office building. It was the first time I really heard uh, any kind of a little bit of a, wow, because Jack says, happy, you know, I have to sell another $3 million worth of product to pay for the rent on this building, something like that. You know, like, why did we have to build this so that that's that's where it got the the uh, innocence got <sighs> just evaporated there were uh, board me and then Hans came in because since Jack took over when he passed we didn't have a VP of sales anymore. Hans Jones comes in to be VP of sales. Hans was an investor in the company, um, a very good person, a very good man too. But he was felt equal to have in, in every way. And he started being very influential. So this struggle comes up and um, there was a board meeting where there were almost as many lawyers as us. And Jack asked Hap something, you know, like, I don't know. And Hap turns and his lawyer, my lawyer will answer that. And Jack got so mad. <laughs> he says, God, we've been together for 30 years or whatever it was, you know. But no, the lawyers were answering him. And that, that led to how I got to be now the executive officer. Okay, now, if I didn't send you the, the interlinking sketch, and I do have some papers you might like about the OI, Odyssey International, and uh, Bill Simon, and that whole thing. And Bill gets to buy the company through uh, lots of leverage and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, he draws me a sketch, and at the top there's OII, then over here there's OIL, and over here there's OILLE, or something like that, and then down over here, oh, there's North Texas, and there's Sierra Designs. Oh, okay, I think I kind of get some idea where we are, but we're nowhere near the top. And uh, he, he um, tried to hire a, a, an executive, and he just didn't find one. So he said, All right, Bruce, you can do this, you, you're the guy. But of course, he, uh, he's charged. 
There's no question who's in charge. He bought it. Uh, he and I are pretty much just oil and water at that point. Um, and he runs garment-making factories through his family, through his wife. Um, his wife's father was one of the garment kingpins of Hong Kong. And Sun Chen, the industrial zone, just inland in mainland China from Hong Kong. So Bill, one of the very first things is, uh, all right, I got a bunch, I got 600 downfill bags I'm getting for you and we're gonna send them in. Well, they arrive and they're like flat like pancakes, right? So we have to say, I mean, you know, what, what are you getting a goose down bag if the goose down's not good? So that's kind of thing we were starting to struggle with. Set up a line, open all the bags up, take all the duck down and beaks and claws out of it, put some really good down in there. Things like that, and then the deliveries. Uh, then there was the, uh, this was an interesting moment of going over the budget, trying to get the next year together, and sales are not everything we want them to be. So he says, all right, you put a million dollars worth of woman's midwear, mid-priced ski wear in there. I said, but Bill, Mark and, and Don dead. Dana, not Dana. Maybe Dana. They they were the designers, and, and she was overwhelmed, and she was pretty good at ski where We had we had extreme gear. We had our own a whole line to develop. Bill said, "Don't worry, no, I got a designer in Hong Kong." I said, "But Bill, is she a scare? You don't have to be a scare." She said, "Designer, we'll get you a line. Don't worry." All right, so we put that million in there. Of course, that realized absolutely zero. We never got the line. Deliveries were very late. That's when we had all the disruption in the, the magazines. The people were saying, you know, they can't deliver. Uh, typical type of desperation. You've got the ski pants, but you don't have the jackets for this two that go together. And then you get the word, well, ship the pants anyway. Well, how, do you, how would you like to be the retailer and you got the pants? <laughs> You know, that's the kind of thing. And so um, I didn't. And, and by this time, too, um, Hap's gone, Jack's gone, Mark's gone. Uh, it, it's, I'm like one of the few from 74. Uh, there, there are certainly people that are earlier than me, but, but um, the, the uh, band is broken up. <laughs> there's, there's no more band. So um, it, it didn't take very long for me and Bill to have a, way, a parting of the ways. Now, yes, um, it's true that Sally McCoy, who was the marketing VP at that time, did climb Mount Everest, attempted. She got stormed out at the top, almost made it. But when she went on that trip, it was a great pride that she really did use North Face stuff. Head to toe, uh, tense the whole thing. We were able, we were still bona fide. And I think today they still are fairly bona fide, but she came to my office one day and said, um, Bruce, we're having a little trouble deciding whether the, the long cotton skirt 
will sell more or less than the short pleated cotton skirt. And I was done. I, I, can't, I can't, I just couldn't relate to that, you know. I wanted to, to make structures. So um, that was the end of my, my 19 years there. Uh, I did move on to Yakima, mainly due to lifestyle change. We'd been in the East Bay and in the urban America for quite a while. And Arcata is a, a special little town right off the coast. And we said, hey, let's, and I, I, had, I had job offers, but I, I didn't want the big job anymore. I was kind of going like, and, and it, was, it was a bit of a, uh, you know, executive for hire and they need a manager. They were growing like crazy in the mountain bike boom now. And people were buying smaller cars because of oil problems and all that. So you know, they put the bike on top of the car. Oh, great, super idea. Well, you need a rack. Well, there you go. And, and the, the company was founded by a guy who made racks to carry ladders to pick apples in Yakima, Washington, hence the name. It's not Japanese. It's from Yakima apples picking. And they took that and they made a kayak foot brace and they made a couple of things and then mountain biking hit. They grew very fast, but it was, a, it was in real need of structure. <laughs> My specialty. <laughs> What was the what was the outdoor industry like at that time in Arcata? I I've interviewed a few people who were starting companies. One in particular, um, we talked with the founders of Downhome, sleeping bag company that was there, and it's called Downhome. I, I, I never know. Um, it was Chuck Chuck and Denise. Um, they they had started a gear store called the Arcata Transit Authority. Uh-huh. And they were selling outdoor products out of their, this bike shop. And they're kind of the originators from what I understand in my conversations with them, they were kind of the, one of the catalysts for the outdoor industry growing in Arcata. It's because they started this gear shop and then it led to companies like Moonstone with Fred Williams um, starting yeah. that um, and Blue, Bu- uh, Blue Puma, Blue Puma. Um, starting there as well. And then, and then Yakima, um, we, we had a whole conversation I I ought to share with you about their origins in that, in that region and, and Arcata of all places becoming this little hotbed. Before I got, that was before I got up here. Right. Right. But Fred was still here. Moonstone Mountaineering was here and, um, uh, of course. Right. Right. Yeah. But uh, the roof rack, the Yakima, was, it's, it was almost car parts, you know? I mean, Don Banducci, I don't know if you've run into him yet, but mm-hmm. boy, he should, if you get a chance to interview Don, it would be a good interview. But he's not really outdoor industry. Well, yeah, it is, I guess. I mean, kayaks. Uh, yeah, carry, definitely. Yeah. Uh, Don Banducci was, was really you know, charismatic and... Uh, Creative, brilliant, and and he made it in, into much more of a sporting goods thing instead of thinking of it as a car park. You know, you don't go sell it down at the at the um, used parts or the parts where they call those places where you go with your get your car parts. Uh, 
Anyway, you sell it in sporting goods, and, and he did a great job. One he teamed up with REI. That was the great hookup. And um, REI, and, and, you know, Yakima wrote, wrote the REI coattails for quite a while. And uh, they did really good. Then the quirk of fate, as where the wheel turns, uh, people stopped making the car smaller and started making them bigger. Hmm. <laughs> it's a crazy thing. Just put your bike in the back. You know, you got an SUV. Heck. Anyway, I did that for eight years. Uh, it was a, a, a great, great working experience. Uh, and, and, and no regrets. The kids grew up here in a beautiful place. Stumbled into the guitar business by... Uh, I retired. Um, I did a little stint with uh, outdoor whitewater rafting company called Wing Inflatables. I helped that company for quite a while and grew it. And uh, I retired basically, really. I was 60 and said, that's it. I'm going to just do something else. And this little company uh, was failing. It had been sold and the contract broken and there's three employees left and they were about to go home. So I bought it. <laughs> and uh, that was one year before the 2008-9 financial crash. So then we had that little crash. Our sales dropped 30% right away, but we got through that. And now we have a thriving little business. Electric guitar bodies and necks, and it's very specialized. It's all tone wood and not even acoustic. We do electric, um, and we make really good necks. We have, we have a, a brand recognition from all the way Japan to uh, England and Europe. So, what, what's the name of the company for listeners? Well, it's it's called Wildwood hmm. Manufacturing. <laughs> Uh, started in a retail store here in uh, Arcata called Wildwood Music. And uh, that's what we get. But, but you wouldn't know us because uh, our customers are the luthiers. They're the guys who actually paint and hook up the electronics and make the tone and decide. Uh, we, we are like, uh, who, who makes the seats for your car? You know, right. <laughs> you have good seats, but you know Toyota or whatever okay how well, do we do it well it sounds like i don't know like the common thread between you know a lot of these different stages of your career is is product creation right and being involved in that in that process you know was that something that you always were gravitating gravitating towards like when you were younger did you did you find yourself to be a creative person or is that something that you feel like you discovered later on when you stumbled into the, the North Face offices? Where, where did that come from for you? I think it's strictly uh, the geometry, hmm. energetics, uh, tension structure. I, you know, I have an Avalon right here. I mean, you can take a quick little look, but this is the type of thing I make. Can you see this? Yeah, yeah. And... Um, this is uh, Easton Aluminum, by the way. Sorry. Right. A, a huge, huge partner, huge uh, reason why the, the tent got to where it was, right? Big contributor. Well, they, they, they made aero shafts. That's what the technology evolved out of. Right. And again, it was Mark and I got on an airplane. We flew down to Van Nuys 
and met with Jim Easton, the guy that ran the Olympics that year, you know, sat in his office. And we had a, um, a structure uh, close to the oval. We were getting close to the oval, but it had fiberglass rods in it. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of getting pieces of fiberglass in your hand, but it's not comfortable. And then, um, and we said, um, Mr. Easton, can you make this? And he said, definitely. So then it became iterative. We, we tried um, which kind of aluminum. Well, all the tents that, and, and, and by the way, the, the tenting at North Face, when I got there, there were two tents and they both had these five eighths inch soft 6061 aluminum thin walled tubes. One of them was called Tuolumne tent, which had just enough for two dudes to sleep, really one, unless you were climbing a rock. You didn't, you know, two of you maybe could sleep in it. One pole at the one end and the A at the other. And the other was called Mountain Tent, two A frames, you know, fabrics drooping and on you getting wet, all that kind of stuff. So to go to this uh, arched, sprung, Aluminum, it's very different. You, you, you couldn't bend those, so they just crimp if you try to bend a A-frame tent pole. So he started with uh, 70, 75, and the problem was it just took a set. So it, it didn't have resiliency, the spring back. So then we went and tried a harder aluminum, which was the 70, 71, or I'm not sure of the, the, the numbers, but... And, and it definitely worked. Um, then we had to get the, the connector, the insert, and it was stronger than the pole wall and it would leverage and break the wall. So we had that breakage, fix that somehow. Then we sell into production. There's hundreds of them out in the field by this point, and we and I'm still there in, in VP manufacturing, whatever, engineering, quality control, all that. And the um, I get a call, and a guy says, uh, "My pole's broke." Mm. Okay, what happened? Nothing. We we were on the beach, and and <laughs> stress corrosion cracking. Okay, well. I said, come, come on, tell, we're, we're going to replace your poles. Don't worry. We're going to get send you poles. We got your way. What happened? Did a bear? Did a bear hit the tent or something? Because we have so many other stories where it, it withheld eight, twelve inches of snow, fifteen, and it was just salt water mm. from the beach, having a little bit, of, a little bit of salt water get in there and the aluminum. So we got through that, and and uh, but you know it wasn't like Easton was a partner or anything. They were a vendor. They're a good vendor, and they're a very good technology. And I still I use their tubes and my structures here. Right. Um, but no, I you know um, I'm not really a, um, a creative guy like that. I'm much more of a technician type. Uh, uh, math came easily to me for some reason. Probably not. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, it seems like around this time and, and even before you start seeing, well, if we look at the larger outdoor industry, you kind of see the influence of people who come with more of an engineering mind or come from other industries 
to contribute to outdoor products. And one in particular, Jack Stevenson is one that comes to mind Mm -hmm. and the work that he was doing Mm -hmm. in in the late fifties, early sixties, I think with his, his um, elliptical arch tent. Um, And then I, I think about, um, I don't know. It just seems like innovation comes to the outdoor industry when you have some of these outside voices or people who, who come with a different background and inject that into the outdoor industry. And that's where you get things like the oval intention, right? This inspiration that comes from geodesics, right? Um, and that's infused into the industry. And that's where you see something new and exciting that really takes off. What are your thoughts on that? I, I've kind of seen that um, consistently when I've, I've been looking at this history, whether it's a Jack Stevenson bringing his, his experience or a, a Bill Moss, kind of relevant to the tent space, right? Kind of a pure artist, yeah. right? Coming with a different perspective and then changing uh, what a tent or a shelter could be, um, you know, for, with, with his unique perspective as an artist. Um, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think it's the, um, the way of industry. Uh, I think it's the way of free markets, individual initiative, technology, uh, material science, developing, growing. And, and yeah, then, then, well, this is my passion, maybe. I'm a rock climber. Well, maybe I should make a better piton because the ones I use aren't very good. Well, what are the materials available? Well, at that point, maybe there's a new material. Um, yeah, we couldn't have made the um, oval without that aluminum pole. Really, it wouldn't have been the same thing at all. Uh, so, yeah, we Easton, in that sense, very important. Um, and, and when you say, the one thing I would just use the word geodesics. It's, it's tossed around pretty carelessly. And um, the North Face, after um, I had left and was, was long gone, but they, they started making some new tents and I'd, I'd get a new catalog and it would say, this is a geodesic tent. Well, it's not at all geodesic tent. It's a hoop tent, yeah. But like you say, there were, there were hoop tents. There's always been hoop tents. But the... Um, the, the, the the inspiration is synergetics geometry. This is the big inspiration, which leads you to geodesics. Um, spinning, the, the fact that Fuller would say there are no things. There, you're never going to get to the quark, to the last building block of the atom. There is no building block. There is only energy, always in motion and gravity. And between those two things, you, you get all the incredible structures that you find I mean, in that catalog dedication. You, you ever see a cubicle on an apple or whatever I said, don't be square. So this right angle problem of, of uh, Newton and um, uh, Descartes and the Cartesian coordinate, that's what I'm trying to get to. The Cartesian coordinate, the right angle coordinate, you can do an awful lot with that. You can obviously land a man on the moon and everything like that. But it's a fundamental mistake. And you're seeing things from the outside. So Fuller, you get inside. You always look at stuff from the inside. That is my, my contribution. Even in these structures, I have made contributions. But uh, creativity, to me, um, I tinker. I, I since you, I have a shop in, in my garage. I, I, I think one of the great, great inventions of suburban life is the big garage. 
and I know people live in apartments and all that, but man, just, just to have your own workshop that's right there. Um, I think. So I do, and I tinker a lot. And a lot of things only, I don't create them. I mean, you, you hear a guy say, uh, or a woman, well, that song just came to me. I wrote it in 15 minutes. And that's kind of what happens to me sometimes. I'll be doing something like that, and you just, you know. So uh, the idea was probably always there, but it just, if you're not doing hands using it, maybe you don't stumble on it. So I stumble on things. Uh, Yeah, the outdoor industry... um, And me, it was just uh, a crossing of paths, you know. It, it wasn't like Yvonne Chouinard or, or Royal Robbins uh, or people like that, who I have the greatest respect for. Uh, one thing I did, I did want to mention, I forgot about, but I would like, do I have time to say one of more course. thing? Of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, one of the things I did, too, as executive, and, and it caused some real friction between me and Bill Simon, was when Will Steger was putting together his Antarctic mission to cross the Antarctic with dog sled. And he put the international group together. There was a Chinese, a Japanese, French, uh, British, and American. Well, those six. And, and the North Face outfitted them completely. Many, many layers of garments. Each one had to be tailored because they were different sizes, you know, mm-hmm. and they had to have and uh, we spent a lot of money on that. And Sally was behind that, and, and Mark, and, and me, and, 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 and Will came many times to the factory, and we made special tents for him. It's just everything, you know. And there's going to be this North Face, uh, what, would we call, what did we call it? It had a name, actually. All these lines have names, but... Um, the polar crossing or something like that was, it doesn't matter. But we were going to make a sales on this thing. So we're going to have special little boutiques in the retail store. And it just, it just didn't happen. So it was one of those things where you sponsor and you put all this out and uh, we didn't get anything back for it. But um, it was a noble thing to do. And the North Face, I think, well, of course I was behind it. <laughs> I think it was a good thing. <laughs> and he did it. He succeeded. He got great, great publicity and fame. And he was, he's a really good man. Well, I, I feel like as you described your contributions and your part in the history of the North Face, it, it's clear that you saw the outdoor industry as well as the company going through monumental changes, right? The changes that you saw at the North Face were, were, common among companies across the industry, right? This transfer, this, this move from privately held company to selling to a corporate entity or, you know, this, this larger movement to manufacturing product overseas. I mean, you, you were, you were at the helm during a very interesting time, not only for the North face, but, but for the industry, um, which it just, it's, it's interesting to hear that perspective, all the, these massive changes that are happening that, that we're still seeing today in the industry currently. I think we continue to see this corporatization of the outdoor industry. I mean, you look at the North Face now and you probably wouldn't recognize it in a lot of ways, right? Um, being part of a VF corporation, um, 
So yeah. it's, it's just interesting to see, you know, what you were facing. Uh, there, there's, there's a lot of that that's still happening in the industry today or movement towards that. Yeah, back in the earlier days, we, we used to make fun of Eddie Bauer goose down because it was, it was, <laughs> and uh, uh, the North Face to me today is the clothing, it's the clothing brand. Right. It needs yeah. authenticity. Yeah. Uh, they even invited me back. I was down there about, oh, not even two years ago, approximately. And um, they were interviewing Mark, they were interviewing Hap. And, and they were wanting to put a little bit of the authenticity is almost what they called it back in, you know, uh, here's the guy who actually did this. It, it's difficult, but they, it, one thing, Chase, I'll say to you, in, in, in my view of industry and, and all that, any hardware that you make is difficult to go and scale up. Right. It's difficult. Um, you can use a, a tennis racket for years and years and years <laughs> you know you buy one tent and you've got a tent you know but you can always need new new rags is what i always called them and so almost all the hardware guys turn to clothing at some point yeah and then you have this issue of authenticity you know i had the a similar conversation with um his name's don wittenberger he started the yak works it's a pack company and he eventually went on and, and um, he now owns Rivendell Mountain Works, um, mm. another, another pack company um, inspired by Don Jensen. Uh, but in either case, he, he had told me that was our struggle when we started our small pack company is we made good stuff. And because we made good stuff, people didn't need to come back to us for anything else. They didn't have to come back and buy another pack because the pack they had was going to last them for, you know, for a couple decades. Um, so, and I think that's another theme that we're seeing. If we want to bring this into the present day, right? That's that's a very common theme of the industry today. Is, um, you know, movement towards apparel, right? Because it is so seasonal, you have to buy more of it, and you can reach a wider audience, right? You can. Not everyone is going to need a tent, um, but but everyone goes out and walks. You know, in a normal year, right? We'll have to walk from their car to work during you know in the cold, and they need a jacket, you know. <laughs> Uh, so there's, you know, th there's that, that component too. And we're definitely seeing more of that today, right? Companies like the North Face, even companies like Black Diamond, we, we work closely with them and, and there's been a big movement on their part to move into apparel just because you can reach more people, right? So it, it's interesting to see that happening back when you were with the North Face and it's a continuous movement towards that. Yeah. It's not a new, I guess it's not a new trend that we're seeing. This has kind of been a larger movement towards apparel well, for a lot of these in, companies. In running companies uh, and thinking about the, the return and what you're trying to do as a uh, financial entity, as opposed to a creative entity or social or you, you, driving the revenue is the number one way to get healthy yeah <laughs> you need to have you just need to have the sales growth and then the sales people come to you and say hey i'm doing everything i can do you give me something to sell yeah. <laughs> so how about the um the um i wish what was mark's mark's first um urban jacket what did he call that um I can't 
but it, it, yeah, all of a sudden it was so different, you know, it's like, but now you go to the supermarket and the people stocking the shelves are wearing North Face jackets, the cashiers are wearing North Face jackets. Right. It's, it's a urban wear. Uh, until the logo gets too common. Right. It's it's interesting you bring up the logo. I just I just did one of these with David Alcorn and we we talked quite a bit about his part in designing the logo um and how he feels about it today and so that hasn't come out yet. Well, but maybe by the time this comes out it'll, it'll have been published, but I'll make sure to share that with you. We had a really good conversation and it was hey, fun. Have you run across Martin Zemitis, by the way? No, but that na- I that name keeps coming up. I've talked with people who work with him. Um he- with Slingfin, worked together at North Face. He came in as a pack designer. Okay, but um, Slingfin is his. Mm-hmm. He probably makes the best tent today, in my view. Yeah, I've talked with Al Al Tabor. Yeah, I know, I know Al too. Yeah, and, and he's mentioned um, mentioned him. He's on my list for sure. <laughs> Good. It's a long list. Um, do you mind if I pull up some of these pictures and maybe I can get your thoughts on a few of these just for context? Probably my favorite picture. Yeah, this is a great one. Is this a picture that you have currently? The original? Uh, probably. probably. That's great. Yeah, what, what's going on here? I've never seen this okay. picture. Okay. Um, this, again, is getting the geometry in the streets. All right. This is, um, there was a, um, the height of the running boom, and I, and I was a runner. But in San Francisco, they have a race called Beta Breakers. We started down Fisherman's Wharf, ran through downtown and up over the, the hill, and all the way out to the ocean, seven and a half miles, two or 300 feet of elevation in the middle. But it was a costume contest. Mm. It would draw 100,000 people at the height. And it, being San Francisco, people ran naked, people did everything. It was crazy, you know. But they had this uh, concept of the costume, and uh, I, I made up the one man running ball size medium um, as a costume and I used the um, backpack frame with the articulating uh, hip belt the joint that Mark and Tom Mann made famous can't remember the name of it at the moment and I built a complete sphere and clothed it and hooked it to the backpack and ran in it and uh, I won that contest so that year that was which which one are you here? Oh, I'm, a, I'm the guy standing in the middle holding the hand. Oh, you're the one in the middle. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was but like, you for, wore one. Did you wear one of these? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I will, I, so for, first I did the one man size medium and it didn't have a head. It was just a sphere. Okay. A costume. And um, I only won that just as an aside because I showed up at the starting line and I had it in the stuff sack on the backpack, just on my back, took out a tablecloth and assembled it right there. And the judges were there and they saw me just put it together and get inside. Anyway, then I took that theme and I have pictures of this too, that you might like to see, but I scaled them because we were doing clothing now. We were doing this extra large. This is Jeff Core. He's the biggest guy. He was the VP of finance and that was extra large. Then we had largest and mediums. And the, beta break, the other contest was called Centipede. You had to have 13 people 
So these each hooked together, and they had to be hooked together. The hands joined with Velcro, and then we ran. And I have pictures of that I could show you too. And um, but we won. It took us three years. We didn't win the first year. We didn't win the second. Third year we won it. App wrote a, a very nice, nice letter about leadership, and because to get all North Face employees to run seven and a half miles, I mean, you had to be in pretty good shape. Yeah. And we trained and all that stuff. So yeah, that's one of my favorite pictures. And you and you call these ball beings? Yeah, I call the that's ball, great. ball beings. Yeah, another favorite picture. This is a the three meter tent that we built for him that he took on his trip that he asked me to make. That's Jack Gilbert um, in the back back left with the mustache. Ball guy, yeah, with mustache. Yep, okay, I recognize a couple of people here, but. And you Jamie's would, and are you which which are you here in the front? Oh yeah, I've got vest on with the You're okay with the vest. Yeah, there's the same is you giving this, that introduction you mentioned. Yeah, this is the the dedication of the new office building, and Bucky's getting ready to talk. He's sitting right there. This is um, his answer about yes, I will make a design for you. See where it says. We'll show you, we propose a small working model. There are two attractive directions to go. We'll let you consider both. So this is where he accepted um, the offer from the North Face to create a, a new design. Oh, amazing. Yes, pretty good. Th this is a, a January of, of 76 when we took the down to his motel room in Santa Monica. Well, and this, I, maybe this is a good time to mention, cause you can clearly see the rings on there. I know that was a big discussion or a, a, a big point of, I don't know, just discussion among the designers between Bob Gillis and his, his design and the fastening system that he had versus what ultimately ended up being the system used to, to hold the, the tent. It was, is that right? I know that because he, he has some patents, and but it didn't end up being what the the oval intention ended up becoming. But he had a lot of patents. It sounded like on the fastening system. He, he did, and it was all it was. It, but Chase, in patent disputes, which I've been through a few, at, at a top kind of struggle with patent lawyers and intellectual property things, the the easier the narrower the patent is, the easier it is to get. Mm. So when you have a patent on something very narrow. And, um, and, and, and you come into a dispute, it's very natural for the other party to say, okay, let's see if we can design our way around that. Mm. What is it exactly here? And what, what he had, the patent that we licensed from him was poles crossing in a ring mm. and a inner fabric suspended from it. So it was very easy to, if you look at that picture, in, in, in between the crossings of the poles, we put a sleeve. So no poles crossed. And, and it, it, it had some advantages too, um, the sleeve. Right. And it never would have happened if we hadn't gone to the Now House and Bob showed up at the Now House in Vancouver with a structure that was smaller than he was allowed to make under the license. In other words, we had small. And we said, okay, after small, Bob, we're, we don't care. You can do anything you want. Well, he made one smaller than that deal, and he had it for sale. 
<laughs> with pamphlets and everything. And uh, was that under his own brand that he had developed at yeah, that time? Right, right. Was that under the Shelter Systems brand yeah, that he ended up starting? System. Yeah, right, right. It's I I talked with his his wife, and I, I know he's he's uh, he's aging, and sounds like he's. Uh, not in great health right now. And, and that's mm-hmm. where we were able to work with his family to secure his, the patents. Um, and we're working on the sketchbooks right now and a lot of his, his, his work that way to help preserve his, his contributions. Um, but I was, his wife walked me around the house and I was able to see kind of his little work area. And I imagine it's similar, similar to you. A lot of miniature models of, of domes. Um, I, I saw that, and after talking with you a little bit and seeing some of the models that you have around, I could see how um, I, I can only imagine what some of the the early days of coming up with designs might have been with with people so passionate about this type of um, product. Well, his um, his contribution was not just the ring, and it was the the notion that you didn't need an external frame and then hang a skin. Mm. You you could pull the skin out with the flexible wand, pull the wand in with with the skin. Uh, It was was more than that. Mm. Because when when we saw the first one, that's why I sent you that. The first time he came, he had straight poles that were forced into a hard thing that he pulled down. And it it really wasn't uh, a tensegrity. He was calling it tensegrities. I, I didn't accept that as a tensegrity, but anyway, when he when he came back with this, and I that's why I sent you that other picture, that the dark picture where it shows the little the little one. Mm. See, see if you have that there. I think you do. That's the office. That's the dedication. This is the earlier. That's for seventy-seven. Is that that big one on the right, the green and red one? Is that that larger version that you had worked on together? That so is this the this would be the inside yes of this one right yes that's the one on the right that green and brown one There's right the okay catalog. it's just a good picture of hap is this, this uh, is Bob this is Gillis okay see and he doesn't want to cut all those pieces and, and that's where by, by being in a garment factory and, and a piecing factory where we made everything uh, it's very natural for me to piece it and, he, and he, he doesn't want to he just wants to pull it but go to the next picture and can you zoom in on that a little bit I can. just for your own self or not okay look how the fabric is just limp in there and right. loose and you could never get it taunt because you're you have fabric as a weave you know and you're pulling and that's what we did we cut it and then double put it together so that it was strong on it and everything like that. But this idea, when he showed that to Hap and Jack and me and Mark, and they turned to me and said, what do you think? And I went immediately, yes, that's him. So this is the Gillis right here. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That is the model, I think. That is the exact, because he sent these pictures back to Jack later. This, This was what... We saw mm-hmm. when we decided to try to get a license with him. And then this is what we made of it, right? Is that you on the inside there? 
Oh yeah, that's me. So you doubled as a model throughout (laughs) all of this model for the catalog. Yeah, of course. Oh, and then there's their synergetics. Is that where you had to go get permission to use that? Right. That's his, that's his opus magnus. I mean, it's a two volume thing that he worked on for, for 50 years. Right. And this, oh, this one's sideways. That's the, that, that was, that's, that's the letter to um, ask him to the, oh. make the, the deal. And then that short one that says personal on it was the reply to this letter. Right. Okay. Now this, this that, now this gives me some, this looks a little bit like a Bill Moss or it's got some Bill Moss-esque flourish to it. I don't know if that's where some of that came from or that's kind of where the industry was, but anyway. Well, this, again, this is, this is almost not back, uh, packing outdoor industry right. this is this is the the stretch toward trying to make something besides just a, a backpackable outdoor structure right. that's a two what we call a two meter dome okay and i did all the pattern work and all of that completely and then the outside when you put the see there's a complete the yellow is completely separate you can look through the door right. and kind of see green and yellow so it's that same pattern of geodesic but then you drape the outer skin and then you just have to fabric just wants to make right so you were hoping there was going to be an iteration on this that you were work going to work with with bucky on or that was the intention to do that yes okay so kind of an iteration on this what what would have been some of those big changes that you feel like what what do you feel like was the next step that didn't happen Okay, it would have been a, a true tensegrity tent. Again, this is not a tensegrity tent. This is a geodesic-shaped hoop tent, kind okay. of. Okay, and it would have been um, a, an industrial-made, um, I'm trying to think of what it, something that breaks in the middle that you might think of, maybe like a cane, but it's a, a stiff, straight compression member not arched with resilient spring, stiff, but hinged. So when you get, so you can leave it all attached even if you wanted to. And then you get there and you just walk around and go, and it has like an over the center and then it's there. Mm. And you know, break it down, you pop it like that. Mm. You see, you can't see my arms or can you? So it would have been something like that. But again, we never saw what he talked about it. I have a transcript when Mark and I were with him at his house and, and we were trying to get the, neither Mark or I really got it. And I even reread it a couple of times. It's pretty hard. Uh, and he never drew it, but he would have, he was ready to, um, that, that visit in June of 83, when, uh, he had dinner at my house that night, um, by the way, uh, hamburger and fruit. So <laughs> Um, That's an important detail. I'm glad that you've mentioned that. <laughs> Not even the bun. He just wanted the hamburger meat and fruit. Oh, wow. <laughs> anyway, and we took him to the airport, and I was in the, the driver in the car, and Mark walked him down San Francisco toward the gate. And when Mark came back. He said, Bruce, he, he barely made it. He's, he's, and two weeks later, sure enough, he's gone. Wow. So it was that close. Uh, so we so anyway yeah there, there's that that's just to show you what, what we were doing is and, this and where is this at is this at his house 
that you set this up? No, this is in St. Petersburg, Florida. That's where, that's where Kathy's mother lived. Oh, okay. Backyard. I just took it along and pitched it wherever I went. Where the heck of it? <laughs> Show them off. Let's see. Um, oh, this, this one's kind of important because in some ways it marks the beginning of the end, Chase, of, the, of, the, of what North Face was. This store, um, I think Happet is, I think in, in Hap's core, he was a retailer. <laughs> I think he, he believed in retail and the North Face retail is very strong today. Yeah. I'm, I'm quite sure of that. And it started as retail. And uh, he started working in the ski hut. So I think, and, and he also always liked the idea of going from raw material to retail pricing. Uh, so when you wholesale, you know, you, you're leaving all this money out there for the next guy. And he thought, maybe I could go all the way, develop, design, source, produce, and retail. And the only, if you do that, that's great. The only difficulty with that is at each step of that, you can lose money as well as make money. And and somehow that that was, became a constant problem of like, how much, how can you invest that much money and have no turn? Anyway. Hmm. Let's see, there might be, there's a few here. You know, um, I, I did write a little of this history for um, Al Tabor. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think I've seen some of that on, on his website. Yeah, I, I wrote a series of a couple things that just tried to give that, but that was really um, not about the industry because I was writing about. This. Oh, and then this is this is your narrative, kind of that timeline oh, of the yeah. the I, oval. I just found that like last night. I haven't seen that's that. a good find. That's that's nice to have that. This you wrote this in about seventy eight. You said I'm probably probably more like seventy seven. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Um, it would have been preparing to um, go to the Pulsley Bowl. So I, I think um, probably late late seventy seven or early seventy eight. Yeah. Oh, I love these. Uh, I've seen some pictures of Bob that have are floating around online. There's one in particular that I love. That's him with his head inside of a, a, a geodesic model that he has just kind of floating over his head, like a halo almost. Um, and so it's fun to see some of these other pictures of Bob and you and Hap in here, but yeah. Yeah. This is the assembly of the first. Yeah. Yeah, the first tent to come off the line. What what was the significance of the uh, freeze dried uh, ice cream for the christening? <laughs> that was the rage, you know. You went backpacking and you roughed it, and you hiked six miles in, and you had some freeze dried ice cream. It was just kind of <laughs> it's very on brand. Yeah, seemed to be fitting at the time. 
Those are great. Pardon me? Oh, it seemed like that would that would have been fitting. Yeah, it was fitting. That's all. Yeah. Just, let me let me do a full screen again because I think that's all the pictures. There you go. Yeah. Okay. No, that's helpful. Just thank you for walking through some of those um, to give sure. some context. But we should probably wrap it up here. We could always do a second one of these. But I just appreciate you taking time to record your your place in all of this. Um, you know, I've seen bits and pieces, and I've heard different stories from different people. Um, this has helped bring a lot of that together. Uh, let me show you one more thing. See this little beauty right here? Yeah. Okay, this is uh, no fasteners at all. It's just a pattern. The, the, the center is uh, little magnets, all spheres, just held together by magnetism. And the outside are springs that are just put in the end of that washer. Mm. And there's no, uh, no screws, no glue, no nails. It's patterns. This is what fascinates me. Mm. And it is of no practical use. It's just this. Well, I, I guess with that, with that said, if you could look back on your contributions to the industry, maybe that, what, what do you feel like that is? What, what do you, when you, or what are you most proud of, I guess? Um, from your time in, in the outdoor industry? Maybe not even contributions, but what are you most proud of? I'd say the catalog dedication. I think that um, putting, putting that right square in the middle of our face. And at that time, we were sending out a quarter of a million catalogs. Because you'd send every dealer 100 or 200, depending on how big they were. I mean, that was widely distributed. Um, I think that's probably probably it. What else I could think of? Uh, of course, the oval. And, and, and naming the oval, I'm proud of that. I mean, I, I came up with that name. Where, where did some of that come from? I know part of that is the shape, but... Well, it's just, again, it's just one of those things where I, I was riding my motorcycle and, and coming back and from somewhere, and I said, well, um, just thinking. All, it just popped. That's it. It's intention. It's intentional. It's not, it, we didn't accidentally make it oval. And it's, it's a tent. <laughs> and it's attention. It's intention. I mean, it's just a play on words mm-hmm. that I thought, hey, why not? And it's stuck. Well, there's there's something about naming tents. The outdoor industry has done a really good job of naming tents, whether it's the elliptical arch or the oval intention or the early winter's omnipotent. There's just for some reason the tent tent names in the outdoor industry are are fantastic. Mark had dandelion too. Oh, dandelion. Yeah. Is dandelion in it? Ah, he didn't call the dandelion. I, for for some reason, I I don't know. Maybe it was just that time, right? There's an ad, an added level of craftsman craftsmanship. You were hand making these tents. There's something about the names of the tents that is equally seems like there was uh, just as much care and attention that went into the name of the tent as the product itself back in that time. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. Of course. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. 
for more conversations with outdoor industry leaders and enthusiasts, subscribe and listen wherever podcasts are found or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast.